0: I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter six. Micah six, we will be in verses one through eight. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on seven seven nine, page seven seven nine. Our sermon title is Answer Me. And the key words for our worshipers and training are Mountain, Justice, and Mercy. I love weddings. Uh, I love Attending weddings, uh, officiating weddings, and last night I had a great privilege to officiate a wedding for two friends. It was a beautiful evening where a young couple exchanged covenant vows before God and many of their friends and family, and they committed themselves to each other for life. One of my jobs as their counselor leading up to the wedding was to help set expectations, as I do in all premarital counseling cases. Setting expectations, coming into marriage, is crucial because if you're married or have talked for even a minute to a married person about marriage, you know that most of us tend to enter into marriage with a measure of unrealistic expectations. Likewise, despite the vows that we make to one another at our wedding ceremonies, in marriage we can in time begin to take one another for granted and fail to convey care and love and appreciation. For not careful, long-term failure to acknowledge our spouse can lead to emotional coolness and hurt feelings which damage the relationship. This is the situation in which Israel finds herself in Micah chapter 6. Micah 6 begins a third and final cycle of sermons that Micah preached in the 8th century B.C. to the nations of Israel in, Judah. in the first cycle, Micah goes to great lengths to charge and indict the two nations, specifically their leaders who were power-hungry, money-grubbing men who got wealthy by means of fraud, threat, and violence. In the second cycle, Micah continues to proclaim judgment against the wealthy and uh, politically well-positioned who abused their power and riches. And here he makes clear that though Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern tribe Judah, they would ultimately escape the invasion of the Assyrian army, which came to their doorstep in 701 B.C. after the Assyrians had previously devastated all ten of the northern tribes and much of the nation of Judah as a whole, the city Jerusalem would be spared um, But ultimately, they would fall to Babylon, which occurred about 115 years later, and the temple itself would be left in ruins. But after this, he softens the tone for the rest of the second cycle of sermons that we have just finished considering last week in chapters 4 and 5. And there, God promises through Micah that He would send a Messiah, one who would unite His people who had been scattered throughout the world. And He would rule over them as their shepherd king protecting them from their enemies and purifying them from their sins. Well, now in the third cycle, God brings a covenant lawsuit against His unfaithful bride. And yet, in the end, he, we will see He moves to bring about the restoration of His people whom He will rescue out of darkness, save from calamity, and forgive for their sins. Our passage this morning introduces this third cycle. And so let's read... Micah 6, 1-8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against His people and He will contend with Israel. O My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and sent you before Moses, and sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Big idea here. The big idea in this text, as we look at verses 1-8 this morning, is that despite Israel's neglect of love toward God, their presumption that His affection can be bought, their utter misunderstanding of sovereign grace, God's people can find acceptance with God and entrance into His holy place through simple faith and love. And As we work that out, there are three things I want to uh, consider with you this morning. First, in verses 1-2, to two, we need to come to terms with this fact. When the Lord speaks we must listen carefully second verses 3 to 5 what you'll notice with me that god's past faithfulness reveals his righteous character and third in verses 6 to 8 we'll see that man's attempts on his own to appease the wrath of god will always fail first then look with me in verses 1 and 2 we'll see that when god speaks we must listen carefully now, this is a point that arguably could be made from several other places in this book. Um, the, the command to listen or to hear occurs uh, five times in the book and is the word on which the cycles of sermons hinge in uh, 1, 2, 3, 1, and 6, 1. Uh, And so one of the major themes of this book, one of the major ideas that Micah is driving at with the people of God is listening well is key. It's crucial for holy living. But listening well is a difficult skill for many of us to learn. I am by nature not a good listener. Nine years, uh, almost nine years of marriage have taught my wife that. They've also taught me that. But it is something that I'm working on daily as a husband, father, pastor, counselor. I must learn to be a good listener. But before I can listen well in any of those contexts, I must learn to be a good listener as a follower of the Lord. Proverbs 18.2 says that the fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Are we like that with God? Am I eager to hear from God? Are you eager to hear from God or just interested in expressing your own opinion? If you are eager to hear from the Lord, where can you go to do so? Do we need to go to the beach Or the mountains to hear from God? Do we need to listen for the small, still voice in our mind to give us a word from Yahweh? Does God speak mostly in the lightning or in the rain? When you feel the wind blow, should you stop and listen in case God is trying to tell you something? Should we fall asleep each night with an eager hope and expectation that maybe God will tell me something important while I sleep and drool on my arm? Well, we don't want to deny that God works in mysterious and providential ways and is able to communicate, us at, communicate to us as He pleases What is the means and the mode by which he has said that he will clearly, has clearly, convincingly, and authoritatively spoken to us? Where has he told us to look for a word from God? In the word from God. God has spoken. We must listen. And this will be quite important later when we look at verses 6 to 8 that God has spoken. Clearly. Believer, are you feeling spiritually dry this morning? Are you in a drought? Are you distant from God? Or worse yet, are you living in rebellion against God? Certainly, for us that know Christ, we can be in rebellion. Those who do not know Christ are always in rebellion against God. But even for us, we can find ourselves at Far too many times living as though we are God. Living as though God is completely irrelevant to our lives. So that describes any of us this morning. Let's listen up. Listen to what God has to say to you this morning. Let's pay attention to these words and heed them. Because you see, God says through Micah, He says to His people, Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against His people, and He will contend with Israel. God has brought His people to court, and He exhorts them to listen as He calls the mountains and the hills to be witness against them. But it's important to note, this isn't public court. This is family court. Unlike the accusations of chapters 2 and 3 against the wealthy landowners and the corrupt politicians in Israel, God, is in speaking to all of Israel here, He wants reconciliation. The point here is not to punish, but to plead. God wants renewed loyalty and love from His covenant people. And so He brings His complaint against them and He calls upon the mountains to stand witness against them. Mountains uh, are regularly imbued with various kinds of significance in Scripture. It seems here that He's calling upon the mountains to stand witness against His people because they represented the sturdiest, the most immovable things in the world. Kind of like they still do today. God had entered into a marriage covenant with the nation of Israel and He calls forth the enduring mountains and the, last, the everlasting hills to testify... Through their witness. Unlike the fickle hearts of His people, the mountains stand firm and bear witness against them. God had married them, Israel, at Sinai. He renewed His covenant with them at Moab each time on a mountain. And God here calls the long-standing structures who have borne witness to Israel's misdeeds to come forth. And so... Let us listen in as God indicts His people that we may learn for ourselves what the Lord requires of us. And that brings us to our second consideration this morning. Not only must we, we listen well, but we must see that God's past acts of faithfulness proclaim to us His righteous character. See this in verses 3-5. to Here is God's complaint. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? There is really, though, a tenderness in his voice. My people, how have I wronged you? How have I wearied you with my love, my patience, my faithfulness, my steadfastness? Has my mercy grown heavy on your heads as it comes down each morning like the dew? Is my justice too good a thing for you? Is my forgiveness too heavy a load to carry around with you? In other words, he says, what fault exactly is it that you think you see in me that moves you to forsake me? This is the same question he asked them through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2, which makes the marriage motif explicit. It says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. But then he asked, what fault did your fathers find in me that they went away from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? As in our own marriages, in order to grow distant from a spouse, one must find fault. Some displeasure. Some small thing, perhaps, that can turn a molehill into a mountain when left unattended. God finds this fault in Israel that they have found fault in Him. And His complaint reaches its pinnacle at the end of verse 3. Answer Me, He says. Well, after what would have certainly been a long and awkward silence indicating that Israel has no response for their lack of devotion, no clear articulation of the fault which they seem to have found in God, the Lord finally goes on and relieves them of their delusion. He seeks to call to their minds events in their past which demonstrate for them His righteous and holy character and His devotion to them, which set against the backdrop of Israel's rejection of God, shines like the northern star in the night sky. He names two things in particular. One set at the beginning of Israel's formative period, and one set at the end. First, he reminds them of the time he brought them up from the land of Egypt and redeemed them from the house of slavery, sending, them before, sending before them faithful, godly leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He says, have I wearied Have I brought you down? Certainly not. I brought you up. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. And second, he reminds them of not only the fact that he gave them freedom, he set them on the path toward freedom, but he, he intervened on their behalf along the way. He says, Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. In the book of Numbers 22-24, we read of Israel's conflict with Moab and King Balak's desire to crush the Israelite people. He seeks the help of the pagan prophet Balaam, who, through not an uninteresting turn of events, tells Balak that he, he actually can't work against the Lord. He can't curse God's people, much as he might like to. Three times Balak asked him to curse Israel. At one point he even says something, if he said it today it would be like, "The cell service must not be very good here. Let's go over here and see if he can hear you a little better." But every time, all three times, Balaam says that he can only speak the words that God gives to him. So the pagan king is unable to persuade the pagan prophet to curse the people of God. God defends and protects his people. Shittim to Gilgal refers to Israel's crossing of the Jordan River into the promised land. Israel was encamped at Shittim during the uh, Balak-Balaam debacle. Uh, It was from there that they set out for the promised land, which they they do reach in Joshua chapter 4. And once they cross the, the Jordan River, they encamp at Gilgal. Now, Interestingly, both of these saving acts of the Lord, Egypt and Gilgal, are, they're held together by a number of things. I'd like to mention two of them here. First, in both, we see God's provision of redemption through a sacrificial lamb. Because both occur at Passover. Egypt institutes Passover, and they celebrate Passover once they cross the river into Gilgal. That's the first thing. The second thing is that God provides a path on dry ground through a raging body of water. In Egypt, they cross through the Red Sea and they cross the River Jordan into the Promised Land, into Gilgal. These examples of God's faithfulness proclaim loudly to the people of God from beginning to end and through the provision of godly leadership like Moses, Aaron, Aaron, and Miriam, and protection from ungodly leadership, Balak and Balaam, through all of this, God has faithfully kept watch over His people. What import does this have for us? It should be clear. When we are struggling to see God's goodness, when we, like the Israelites, find some fault in Him, when we find ourselves wearied with the way He directs our lives, We find ourselves questioning God's providence, His plans and provisions for us. We must look to His past acts of faithfulness and be reminded that He has been with us thus far. And we can trust He shall not let us down. These verses serve as an Ebenezer, a stone of help, like the one Samuel raises in 1 Samuel 7 after Israel defeats the Philistines. They call on God's people to remember that God is faithful. God is just. God is righteous. He is light. And in Him, there is no darkness at all. Are you struggling with life at the moment? Have you grown weary of the burden that you carry? Without belaboring the point, we are in somewhat of what appears to be a national even global crisis. Are you trusting in the Lord? Do you know that whatever happens, God is not caught off guard? God's not surprised. God is not worried. And He is doing everything well. I cannot promise that whatever burden you feel and carry now will lift quickly. But I can promise that you do not carry it alone. If God is for you, who or what virus can be against you? This is one of the major messages of the Bible. It's certainly in that passage in Numbers. God had blessed Israel, and it didn't matter what Balak promised to Balaam. Threats, carrots, or sticks, he couldn't speak a word against the Lord's people. In fact, in the end, Balak promised, uh, he had promised to Balaam all sorts of things, and in the end, Balaam pronounces three blessings upon Israel and a curse upon Moab. He says, A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter rise out of Israel, it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Like we saw a few weeks ago in Micah 5, there was to be a ruler who would come from Jacob, who would rule over the nations and bring the whole earth into subjection. Friends, is this this not the clearest demonstration of the love of God? God kept His promise and sent His Son. He has provided for us a Redeemer, a Savior, who would show forth the righteousness of God and give us the righteousness of God in exchange for our sinfulness. If God gave up His only Son, shall He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Well, look with me finally in our third observation this morning in verses 6 through 8. Man's arrogant attempts at self-justification will invariably fail to appease the wrath of God. My guess is that Micah 6, 8 Uh, competes perhaps only with Micah 5.2 in terms of popularity of of verses in this book. Most people, if they know anything about Micah, they probably know Micah 5.2 and Micah 6.8. But despite this popularity, it seems that many may fail to fully understand the basic drive of this passage. I say that because given nearly every way that I've heard Most people, or at least in popular Christian culture, the way I've heard people talk about this verse, I think it's misunderstood. The sense I have is that for many people, they've typically thought of Micah 6-8 as this very encouraging verse about how God's people uh, should pursue justice, love, kindness, and, and humbly walk before and with God. And it's just this really pleasant, super well and swell verse. It sounds great, and these are wonderful things to which we are called, but I think we need to understand why God says them here, and it changes the tone a little bit. We see that coming if we pay attention to verses 6 and 7, because I think what's happening in these three verses here is that God is intuiting the basic Israelite response to what He's just said. Remember these things that declare my righteousness. And so the idea is that these verses are saying that in light of God's righteousness, the Israelite thinks, he's clearly demonstrated these past events, in these past events many others, what can I do to appease his anger at me? God's holy, I'm not. What kind of sacrifice can I make to curry favor with him? I know burn offerings. Calves, a year old. You could sacrifice calves in a burnt offering up to a year old. And so if you have a fully one-year-old calf, his work, his uh, his value of labor is is well known to you as opposed to a a newborn. And so it constituted a real sacrifice. So the Israelite says, burnt offerings, I got it. No, how about this? It's not quality that matters here, but quantity. I'll bring thousands of rams. Ten thousand rivers of oil. No, not good enough. That is not good enough, my friends. I will sacrifice my own son. That should work. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. It's interesting, right? Right after being reminded of God's provision of redemption through the sacrifice of a lamb... Deliverance through raging waters. The death of the firstborn of Egypt. Israel's response is to work for acceptance with God. And the suggestions that he makes to himself, this hypothetical Israelite, are so over the top they border on outright absurdity. Ten thousand rivers of oil. Thousands of rams. This is Solomon level wealth we're talking about here. And in the mouths of the unregenerate, arrogant Israelites, they bring nothing but the stench of abomination to the Lord's nostrils. They are blind to sovereign grace. We see that because Micah rebuffs their pretensions. Burnt offerings, thousands of ram, ten thousand rib. God has told you, O oh man, what is good. <coughs> And what does the Lord require of you? He requires you to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before Him. Remember what we said earlier? When God speaks, we need to listen. God had told them what He required. You could look at multiple passages to make this point. One will suffice. Deuteronomy 10, 12-13 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep His statutes and the commands of the Lord. And Jesus summarizes all of it with, love God supremely, love your neighbor as yourself. God requires Israelite if you're asking perfect and utter perfection from you. If you're going to approach God on the basis of what you can do, the words of Genesis 2.15 are ever before you. Do this and you will live, and in the day that you fail, you will surely die. And here is the really bad news. Each and every one of us has already failed. Miserably. We were born disqualified, in fact. Because of Adam's sin, each and every one of us was conceived in sin. Born at enmity with God. And every day since, we have lived out and confirmed our condemnation through our own acts of sinful rebellion against God. Who are we kidding? The natural man doesn't do justice. We bite and devour one another. Look at the aisles in the grocery store. We eviscerate one another and use others for our own sinful and shameful gains. The natural man doesn't love mercy. Sure, he likes mercy all right when it's coming his way. But when he's commanded to extend it to others, it's a story, different story altogether. And the second we read the word humble, we know we're doomed. And so I don't know what your, your past thinking on this verse has been, but just as a general caution, I think this is a word spoken against us. Spoken against our thinking that we can justify ourselves. It's spoken to our just condemnation. It doesn't offer us good feelings about all the really great things we get to do as Christians. First, it damns us as just, unloving, and arrogant sinners. And yet, it is precisely at this point where we can stop fall to our knees and erupt with a loud song of adoration for the star of Bethlehem from whose hand the scepter shall not depart. The last question before verse 8. The last question in verse 7. It's a good one. Should I give my firstborn? The clear answer is no. Not only for the reason... The obvious reason that that would be murder. But the answer to this question is no. Also because my firstborn couldn't do anything to save my soul. We could bring together every firstborn in this room, in this county, in this country. Every firstborn in all the world. And they wouldn't move the needle a millimeter as it concerns our just desert of the wrath of God. But there is one who is called firstborn whose death did and does satisfy the wrath of God. The scripture tells us that God does not require our firstborn because he gave up his own. God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son in order that all who believed in him should not perish but should have eternal life. The Son willingly laid his life down and absorbed the wrath of men and the wrath of God so that unjust, unloving, arrogant people like you and me could be saved, would be saved. This is the problem with the sacrifices and the offerings planned by the representative Israelite in these verses. The sacrifices prescribed in the Old Testament were pictures and symbols of what God was going to do in His Son. They were never intended to buy off God. But that's exactly what is being imagined here. And so it's not burnt offerings and sacrifices that please God, but a broken and contrite heart. One trusting in the sacrifice And the provision that he has made for sin. And so, if you have been granted through faith a broken heart that loves the will of God, praise God. I pray that you would know that you have been freed from your bondage to sin and death, and you are free to do justice for the sake of Christ and the good of your neighbor. Your heart of stone has been removed and you are free to love kindness with the heart of flesh that has been given you. And you have been freed from the shackles of pride, and so you can get up and walk humbly with your God. And for any listening who may not be one of those people upon whom the mercy of God in saving faith has fallen, perhaps today is the day. You've been moving your whole life in any direction you pleased. But what you may not have realized is that God has directed your steps and brought you to this place today. You're not here. You're not listening to this, watching this by accident, friend. Would you hear the word of the Lord for you this morning and put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved from the coming judgment that hangs over your head this very moment? We are not guaranteed tomorrow tomorrow. But if you will come, if you will come, you are guaranteed a welcome reception in the arms of the king.